Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Are human beings smart? Like, would you say that we are the most intelligent and ethical beings on the planet? I mean, take a look at all that we suffer through, right? Wars and climate change, cyber attacks. Look at what we do to each other. We often don't see the problems until it's too late. Take artificial intelligence, for instance. There are certainly a lot of issues with it, right? Lots of concerns that are being raised, and yet we still seem to be moving full steam ahead. You know, the problem might be that we're just too smart for our own good, that we don't use our intelligence for shared ethical connections. That's an interesting idea. It's one that our next guest has been exploring. It is Dr. Richard Van Oort, who's a professor of English literature at the University of Victoria. Well, Richard, thank you so much for joining us today. I'd love it if we could start, if I could quote you back to you. You say in your piece that you've written, we are the only species on earth for whom intelligence is also an ethical liability. That's kind of scary stuff, Richard. <laughs> well, it, I mean, it's, it's only scary if you think of uh, language and information in a certain way. And I think in our technological age, we've become... Uh, kind of accustomed perhaps too easily to seeing uh, language and speech and communication as simply about communicating facts or concepts about the world. And we've stood, we've stood back, as it were, from understanding speech as always coming from a particular person, and that person has feelings and emotions, and that language is really about much more, communication is about much more than just communicating facts. Right. And, yeah? I was going to say then, so where does, how do we fit artificial intelligence into all this? Does AI understand that? Well, I would say no, not at all. I mean, AI is very good at, at uh, you know, reproducing factual human, human speech, or at least giving the illusion that that's what it is doing. Uh, because actually, you know, when you look at something like GPT, uh, often it gets the facts wrong. But that in itself is not the problem. The problem is the, uh, this idea that uh, human intelligence is simply about delivering information about the world. And the faster you do that, the more intelligent you are. Really, language, as far as I'm concerned, is about so much more than that. And if you look at uh, human culture, if you look at literature, and if you look at religion, you can see that very clearly. So where do you think we need to be careful then? What do we need to be aware of? Um, well, I think we need to be aware of the fact that uh, the artificial intelligence models, although they're very powerful and very ingenious, that they are not really reproducing human intelligence. They're just reproducing a very small subset of human intelligence. Um, for example, if you ask, can AI produce... Um, uh, uh, a being or an entity that can recreate the conditions for 
religion, I would say no. But that, to me, is uh, as much or maybe even a more important part of human culture than simply uh, the communication of information. And as I say, if you look at the history of humanity and, and, and religion and myth and especially literature, uh, these cultural forums, they, they understand that much, much more clearly. In what way? So what are some of the examples like in history where literature can point to this? Well, literature, you can't really understand literature without first understanding uh, religion, and and in particular, religious ritual. Because what what ritual asks you to do is it responds to the question, how how should I act in this urgent ethical situation? So, I mean, one example I give is that if you look at hunter-gatherer tribes, when you know, when a valuable resource such as meat is distributed, there are always very carefully prescribed attitudes towards how you distribute the meat, um, and it's a highly ritualized ceremonial occasion. And, of course, that's because it, in these circumstances, violence can always break out because the desire is so strong. And so ritual allows that violence and desire to be constrained and um, controlled appropriately. What, what literature does is, it, it, I mean, obviously, it doesn't work in, this, in exactly the same fashion, but it invites you to put yourself into, um, imaginatively, into urgent ethical situations by identifying with particular characters. Now, my field of uh, specialty is Shakespeare, and Shakespeare's a master at this, right? He, drama is dependent upon conflict, and he puts his characters in very um, uh, urgent ethical circumstances, and we identify with these characters, but we, we also watch them, especially in the tragedies. We watch them make mistakes all the time, and in, in watching them make mistakes, we learn something about ourselves. For example, when you identify with a character like Hamlet, you initially uh, support the idea of his vengeance against his murderous uncle. But the more you engage with the drama, the more you see the problems in that vengeful impulse that Hamlet finds himself being sucked into. Hamlet doesn't really understand it himself. He thinks about it. But you, as an external observer, begin to question that impulse, that vengeful impulse. Is that something we forget? Do we forget that we're supposed to learn from these things and value them and not just argue with each other all the time? Uh, well, I think, I mean, I think there's a, how should I put this diplomatically? There is a kind <laughs> of uh, prejudice against uh, the humanities and against literature. Generally speaking, we privilege science because science is so obviously successful, but Science can only tell you so much, right? It can tell you a lot about the physical, chemical, and the biological world. But when it comes to understanding human meaning, it's much less successful. And um, we have this bias towards science because it has been so successful. That leads us to either ignore, suppress, or deny the ethical questions. And these ethical questions are are addressed by the humanistic fields. Right, philosophy, but literature, history. But we don't value them as much. Like you, you have some great examples that you said you're a Shakespeare specialist. I understand that too. But you use Mary Shelley's Frankenstein is a good example. Even the Iliad is a great example. Yeah, I mean, that one thing that struck me about all this talk of AI, and you know, we tend to anthropomorphize AI, and you hear technologists saying this. You know, soon the computers will be smarter than us, and then, of course, they're going to take over the world. But, I mean, this is, to me, when I hear this, I think, well, you know, this is a very old story, and it's been talked about for a long time. So Mary Shelley, for example, 
you know, considered to be one of the first authors of the science fiction novel, uh, <laughs> she had Victor Frankenstein, her protagonist, who was this chemistry student, create this being that ultimately could think for itself. But the story she tells is, of course, that this, th this being that could think for itself came into conflict with its creator because it's the, the being, the, the monster, uh, saw that Victor had what he wanted. So it was competing for something that they both desired. And in, in other words, Victor denied to his monster what Victor himself had, which was a wife and the possibility of children and so on. And so the monster tried to take revenge and succeeded, uh, uh, take, took revenge on Victor and, and his family. So really the monster is a metaphor uh, uh, for human violence, right. which is why Victor calls you know, calls his creation a monster. But we don't seem to learn from these lessons, <laughs> Richard. No, unfortunately we don't. And, you know, um, today we, we, we hear a lot on the Internet about, uh, you know, conspiracy theories and extremism. But, uh, you know, it's, as though these are new things, but they're not new. I mean, conspiracy theories and extremism has been around for as long as humans have been around creating their own traditions and cultures and histories. And, uh, you know, what's new, of course, is not the extremism and the violent tendencies, but the, uh, the information technologies through which these tendencies are spread. Right. And, you know, in other words, the digital revolution. Ah, the digit. We have so much to learn, and we just need to pay attention to the lessons that have already been there right in front of us. Richard, thank you so much for your time. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. That's Dr. Richard Van Oort, Professor of English Literature at the University of Victoria. Speaking of things to learn. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it, all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is Mornings with Simi. There is definitely a right way and a wrong way to try to get a hold of people. I feel very strongly about this. We're going to talk about that with our Scott Schantz this morning. Great article in the Washington Post, and it's the number one article on their website right now about phone etiquette. Scott, good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. I love this story. Oh, man. I've already sent it to some family members of mine. Oh, who really? We, because, That's passive aggressive. Oh, well, it's the, we've had this conversation ongoing in my family with certain people for years because I would be like out at, uh, we'd be out for dinner or in a 
car together on a trip or whatever, and my phone would ring, and I would look at it and then not answer it, and then someone else in the car would be like, someone's calling you. Why aren't you answering it? And I'm like, well, because it's not appropriate. I'm in the car with you folks. I'm paying attention to you folks here right now, and they just couldn't understand that, and I do think it's a generational thing, the way that some people use the phone versus the way that that others use the phone. Yeah, I just don't answer the phone. Yeah, like this this, like, I've People or no people, I'm not answering the phone. I've posted it on social media before that before you call me, Ask yourself this. Could this information be a text? Ask yourself that. That's the filter. And the answer is almost always yes. Like text me first. And then if it's important, we can jump on a phone call or arrange to meet in person. Yeah, I have a friend who she um, very stubbornly is she will not update her phone. She will not like don't try texting because really. Yes. And will still phone and leave messages. Oh, yeah. she, she's the phone and leave message person. So what I do is I don't even listen to the message. I just see that she's phoned and I'll just call her back at some right. point. And oftentimes the voicemail that I get, the messages that I get are, hey, it's so-and-so, call me back. Do you leave voicemail? <laughs> Never. Never. Do you get people who leave you a voicemail? Yes. Because the number one rule on this is don't bother leaving people a voicemail. Right. And it, th- there are exceptions to that, it says. And I will, I will say that I agree with this, that if it's like someone who you want to to hear their voice or they know want to hear your voice. And they summed it up the article in this way, that facts go through text, emotions go through voice. Whether it's like a voice memo or a voice note, you know, those are things that people can do now with uh, iMessage and right. WhatsApp and stuff. That if you're calling to say I love you or to send an emo- like something emotive, that you I'm can... Fi- I'm fine with the heart emoji. Okay. I, I mean, <laughs> I am too. Uh, but they're saying that those type of things can be... Oh, those are okay to be conveyed in voice. But if it's information like dinner, 6 p.m., my house, that should be a text. Okay. Let's run through the rules that they go through in this phone etiquette article. Yes. Number one is you don't need to leave a voice. No, never. Just text me or you you know what? Even if I see a missed call, that's enough. I'll call you back. I agree wholeheartedly. And the other is like just even if you feel like you need to leave a voicemail, leave a voice text. A voice text. Yeah. Another one, uh, call or sorry, text before you call. Like if you feel like you need to call, you're insisting on calling text and say, hey, is there a time that I can call you? Like you text first, right? Exactly. And then, and then call. I think that is Or is a, it okay if I call? Are you up for a phone call? Is it okay if I call you? Yes. And this this one I think is like everybody at, uh, is talking about that one. I think a lot of people can relate to that one. And then the one that I mentioned as well. Um, emotions on through voice and facts through text. I wholeheartedly applaud this list. But let me ask you this, people with cell phones out there, which is almost everybody. Do you have unlistened to voicemails on your phone? Do I? Yeah, yes. absolutely. Right. I can go days with that little <laughs> red dot there and me not checking it. I There's one more. Totally. I agree with you. The one more rule to me, I just w- refer yes. back to the article that I think we need to refer to as well. You don't need to answer your phone. That when someone does call you, like like I was I saying in the that. vehicle, that my someone in the car to me was like, why aren't you answering that? And it's like, I'm not obligated to answer just because someone else is calling me. I Ooh. feel that in a big way. If it's important, text me and I'll see it and I'll get back to you. But sometimes you get called out for like, you never answer your phone. You know what? No one Don't does. No one does. And we're not just making this up. This is the new phone etiquette as put out by the Washington Post. I think it's, I love these rules, but we do want to hear from you on this too. What is your phone etiquette? Do you leave voicemails? 
Do you not listen to voicemails? Do you prefer to text people? Like if you're going to communicate with someone via your phone, and yes, phones are for communication technically, what are your rules around that? You heard mine and Scott's. I think we're fairly similar. Very much so, yes. Yes. Okay. Let's hear yours. Simi at cknw.com. That's an email. You don't have to, or you can actually call or text our buzz line. If you know what, you want to leave a message for us, great. We're actually asking you to do that. 604-331-2899. Would love to hear from you on that too. This is Mornings with Simi. It is time now for our daily chat with Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun. And good morning, Vaughn. And good morning, Simi. I have a question for you. Sure. Do you leave voicemails for people? Yeah, I leave voicemails. I send text messages. I send emails. Uh, I'm not a patient person. So I use all the methods available. And if I don't hear back in like 30 seconds, I go through the same cycle again. (laughs) Uh, The listener, however, uh, the unlikely event they've ever tried to use my voicemail, what they may discover is a complaint that I hear all the time, which is it's not set up. That's hilarious. And also Um, not entirely unexpected. (laughs) Well, and some might say, knowing me well, that that's because I don't understand the technology and know how to do it by myself. Others might go, well, Palmer's transitioned to the new era where you don't use um, voicemail and leave messages. So I just let the listener decide on their own on that one. So you're either way behind the times or way ahead of the times. Is that what you're saying? (laughs) I'm always looking for an excuse for my inability to deal with technology. And I'll take refuge anywhere. I agree with you 100%. You do not need to set up your voicemail. Absolutely not. You don't need to do it. All right. Let's talk about what's going on out there. There's a big contingent, as you talked about, uh, of BC politicians in Ottawa today. Yes, there is. The premier and six ministers uh, went down to Ottawa yesterday with a long wish list. And we're getting a media news conference with the premier, a phone in one, um, around noon today with a progress report. Look, uh, the EB government has a long list of things that needs help from Ottawa on. And we've entered a time when the federal government, the federal liberals, uh, need British Columbia more than ever. And for a couple of reasons, one, because they're in trouble in the opinion polls. But in addition to that, of course, Trudeau wouldn't be prime minister without the day-to-day support of the federal NDP. So these are two governments that have a lot of mutual interest in making each other look good. And I'm expecting we will get a fairly positive news conference today at noon. Okay. On what topics do you think? Well, infrastructure's on the list. BC would very much like the federal government to help out on some major projects out here. Uh, I guess you'd say the Massey Tunnel replacement is still on that list and they're still looking for help. Otherwise, rumbled several times saying, well, yeah, we're interested, but they'd like to see it. Housing, and this is one that EB has been pushing. He wants the federal government to effectively help create a land bank here in British Columbia, a federal land that will be available for quick development of housing. That's what EB's pressing for, uh, military bases. Ottawa owns a lot of land and wants to see that available. And also looking for the federal government to expedite funding for housing and get going on it. But both these governments, Simi, are masters at holding news conferences to announce what they're going to do and how they're going to help. But with an election, a little 
just a year away, we'll be into the campaign a year from now. Uh, EB has got to start showing those results that he promised, and he wants as much help as he can get from Ottawa. Is this a mutual thing right now, though? Because Ottawa certainly needs BC being in a three-way tie poll-wise, and they've got an election not that far away on the horizon. Yeah, I mean, the prime minister has said he's not in any rush to call an election, and he's also said he's staying. Both of those, I think, at the federal level are big question marks, but no question that... um, the, the, the era of talking and promise-making, uh, public patience has run out on a lot of this stuff. And, you know, British Columbia can't even keep up with current levels of immigration. And the provincial government has rightly pointed out that the federal government is very generous in allowing immigration to the country. They are not nearly as generous in helping to build the housing that those newcomers need and fund the other services they need. Uh, British Columbia gets a disproportionate number of the immigrants. Uh, The EB government is very proud of that. They say it makes British Columbia a great place to come to and a great place to live, and we all know that. But this provincial government is one of the first to start clearing its throat and saying to Ottawa, you know, you're letting all these people in. That's wonderful but we're having trouble looking after them with services that ought to be shared funding with the federal government. A good example, you want municipalities to start building housing? Uh, The province wants Ottawa to help construct the infrastructure of sewers and everything else, roads that are needed for those municipalities to be able to accommodate all the new residents. Okay, so obviously that's going to be an issue. I have to ask you as well about bail reform, right? Because there's a couple of things that are on the list here. Bail reform's another one. Yeah, I said yesterday that, you know, I was still getting caught up when I got back and I noticed the federal government had done what the provinces have been asking for, BC in particular have been asking for, which is the House of Commons on their first day back, I think, approved the changes to the criminal code that will make it more difficult for repeat violent offenders to get bail. That's the change. Uh, The Ottawa brought in the legislation in the spring. They didn't debate it for the House of Commons adjourn, and the province was pretty upset about that. So the House of Commons put it through, and that's very good news, and the EB government is happy, but uh, the Senate hasn't passed it yet. The bill goes from the House of Commons to the Senate. That's how the system works. And there has been a significant pushback uh, at federal level from groups that say that are opposed to this particular bail reform. They say it won't work. They say it is at odds with rulings of the Supreme Court of Canada. And they say it will lead to greater incarceration of marginalized groups, including Indigenous people. So they're upset that the House of Commons passed the bill without debating it. They just passed it. And they very much want the Senate to take its time, maybe even hold hearings on this. And so one of the reasons that the province's attorney general is with the premier, Nikki Sharma, is she's trying to talk to the federal government and the Senate to the degree that she can to say, this reform still isn't a reform, still isn't what the province needs, unless the Senate passes the bill as well. So it's still an open question whether or not 
this reform is going to be enacted in time to make any difference here in British Columbia before the next election. A couple of the things I wanted to talk to you about as well this morning, Vaughn. One is, what did the Premier have to say about the shared intelligence between the federal and provincial government, especially when it comes to this whole India situation? Well, that's an interesting one because uh, when I went over the transcript of the Premier's remarks at the UBCM on Friday to reporters, I found that he brought this up. And I Look, uh, I spent five weeks in the United States, and when you go to the United States as a Canadian, uh, you generally don't hear any news from back home, and that's a good thing, given what the news media reports. Uh, But in this case, there was plenty of coverage down there of this breach precipitated by our prime minister's comments between Canada and India, the United States government involvement and allegations about who knew what and when. Well, uh, the premier on Friday got asked about the Prime Minister's comments and about the breach. And he said a couple of things. Um, He said, first of all, that he had a concern about information sharing between the federal and provincial governments on this matter. So uh, E.B. said he learned about the Prime Minister's comments um, an hour before the Prime Minister made them. And, you know, the Prime Minister got up in the House of Commons and accused India of being involved in the killing of sick advocate Nijar here in BC in June. And the premier left it hanging there in the air that he thought he should have been told a bit more sooner. He also said that where the Security and Intelligence Service is briefing provincial politicians on this, E.B. says he basically gets told what's already been reported in the news media. And E.B. said, I can read the newspapers. You know. So, You put all that together, again, he's indicating that he expects better from the federal government, given the pressures here in British Columbia on the provincial government within the Indo-Canadian community over this issue. So um, apparently that's one of the things they're going to talk about. I don't know what he'll say about all this today, Simi, but he's already said more on it than I would have expected. So there's a, hmm. there's a significant level of disappointment here with the Premier over the way the Prime Minister made this statement in the House of Commons without really preparing the provincial government for the implications of it. And speaking of uh, the U.S. and the things that they write about down there, really interesting article, Vaughn, in the Washington Post this morning on the murder of Mr. Nijar in Surrey with access the likes of which that I don't think Canadian media has gotten either. So uh, very interesting article in the Post, so there's more for us to talk about. I I also have to talk to you about housing this morning, too, because there's this big press conference coming up. Yes, so um, Housing Minister Ravi Kalon has press conference in Saanich at two o'clock this afternoon, and this involves the naughty list. Now, New Democrats hate it when we refer to it as the naughty list, but the government has been talking, well, David, he's been talking for three years about getting municipalities to expedite approval of needed types of housing, and the government named, after they passed legislation to help expedite, 10 municipalities in BC that in the provincial government's opinion weren't doing enough. Uh, Saanich is one of them and that's where Galan is holding his press conference today and supposedly uh, we're told what we're going to get today, Simi, is um, the naughties 
Again, they hate it when we say that, so I keep saying it. Uh, <laughs> but what? Come on, you got to have some fun. Absolutely. Um, given the message control in the provincial government, anytime something wriggles out from the message boxes and you get to talk about it, uh, you make the most of it. So anyway, we're going to hear today what the ten municipalities have got to do in terms of targets in order to make the provincial government happy. Now, this is, we're told, not just a matter of you need to build this many units of housing. They are going to be told the type of housing they need to build. It's for uh, middle-income residents. It's for people with families. So enough of the one-bedroom condo towers. Uh, Start building townhouses. And, And this is true. The province is absolutely right about this. So you know, I think there's going to be public support for it. Remember, however, that the provincial government provided a system to ensure that the housing gets built. At the end of the day, if the municipalities don't live up to it, the province can intervene and overrule them. Now, they say they don't want to use that power. It's just one of those nifty little threats that they don't actually want to use it. Don't get us wrong. We're going to work with the municipalities and we're going to provide them we are going to provide them with money to help them do this. So at the UBCM uh, on Friday the, or last week, the New Democrats announced a $61 million fund to help municipalities build capacity, hire staff and consultants, expedite approvals. The province has also made it clear that it's going to be there with money for infrastructure. But that's the carrot, but there's a stick implied in all that too, Simi, which is if the municipalities, the naughty, really naughty ones, won't go along with this, probably it's going to withhold that kind of money. That money is not going to be available. So um, this is a very much carrot and stick thing, and it's on a pretty tight timeline, Simi. Go back to when David Eby became housing minister under John Horgan in December 2020. He started talking about this. One of the first planks in his bid for the leadership of the NDP a year ago, it was enacted. The enabling legislation for this was enacted in December. Well, anybody can look at the political calendar and go, you know, David Eby said, we're not just going to talk about this stuff. We're going to show results. Well, time is running out on the results. He's, He's the one, you know, the election date is fixed October the 19th, 2024, Uh, He's got to get going on some of this stuff. So he's already, I would say, behind schedule. Today's press conference, news conference, is going to be pretty important. I think it is too. Vaughn, thank you. We'll talk to you about it tomorrow. Bye-bye, Simi. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Canada is taking a bit of a beating on the world stage these days. First, the diplomatic row with India has left so many Canadians wondering who's on our side out there in the world. And now this terrible situation involving a former Waffen SS soldier being recognized in our House of Commons. It's an international embarrassment. Are we out of our league here? Like, what's going on? What do we need to do to right this diplomatic ship? Joining us now is Vincent Rigby, former National Security and Intelligence Advisor to the Prime Minister, to talk more about this. Vincent, thanks for being back with us. My pleasure. Good, good to be here this morning. 
So, Vincent, when you see what's happening, don't you ask the question, what is going on with Canada right now? <laughs> I think it's an excellent question. I think that uh, for this government, I think for a number of governments over a number of years, uh, we felt that uh, lots is happening in the world, but maybe it doesn't directly impact us. And so uh, I often quote from a Canadian senator back in the 1920s by the name of Raoul Dandurand, and uh, he said that uh, Canada lives in a fireproof house, far from unflammable materials. That was back in the 1920s. I think a lot of Canadians and a lot of governments have felt the same about Canada in the 21st century, and it's simply not true. Uh, there's so much happening in the world now. All of this stuff impacts us, and we need to pick up our game. We really need to pick up our game, and I think you're right. We're seeing it on so many different fronts right now. You've mentioned, too, there's also the Chinese foreign interference um, debacle. So um, a, a lot a lot happening, and the, the world is, is starting to really impinge on us, and we need to, we need to respond. Would you say damage has been done to Canada's reputation? Well, it's funny. I mean, I was talking to my wife this morning, and we were reading the headlines in the newspapers, and and you know, both domestically and internationally. And it is getting to the point some days when you feel like, oh boy, what's it, what's it going to be today? And that seems to be the tenor of the press, uh, at least in Canada, and and to a certain extent overseas as well. Um, that oh boy, it's, if it's not one thing, it's it's another. Our, our reputation, I think, has been impacted in so many different ways over the last, not just the last few days, but over the last months and to a certain extent years. Um, our standing in NATO, how we spend on defense, what we do on national security, what we do internationally in various regions in the Indo-Pacific region, all the business over why were we not invited to join AUKUS, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I've been arguing for a while that, that Canada needs to provide a little bit more strategic vision on the role it wants to play in the world because all these things that happen in the world, they impact it here at home. And we're seeing that we're seeing that now. So, so yeah, there is a reputational side to it without a doubt. Okay, so then what do we, what does the government need to do here to signal more seriousness to its allies? Well, I think we could, we could start, as I say, by being a little bit more, a little bit more strategic. I mean, we, we respond to all of these episodes and all of these events in a very ad hoc sort of knee-jerk reaction. And it seems like we're constantly behind the eight ball. And so a little bit more strategic vision, I think, explaining to Canadians, first of all, the state of the world and how all of this impacts Canada, because we just don't have these kinds of discussions in Canada in sort of a sober fashion. We always wait until there's a crisis and then the discussion takes place. So I think the government needs to show some leadership and get out there and say, okay, this is the state of the world. Um, these are the things that we need to do and, and talk about that response. And so strategically, you know, we've not, I've said this many times on your show before, We've, we've not had a national security policy since 2004, I mean, 20, 20 years almost. We've not had a foreign policy statement since 2005. Um, so let's start with a little bit of strategic vision. What does Canada want to do in the world? And, and uh, you know, what are the resources that we need to carry out uh, these various activities and, and restore our reputation? But more importantly than reputation, uh, defend the interests and the values of, of Canadians, because that's what governments are, are supposed to do. And when it comes to this, the Indian situation between Canada and India, where do you think Canada stands on this? Like the react, what did you make of the reaction of our allies? I wasn't surprised at all um, because our allies are in a very, very difficult position here. Everybody knows that the United States, in particular, but the West writ large, is 
really going after India right now in the, in the sense of, of um, courting them. They want India as a bulwark against China. Uh, they'd love they'd love India even to get off the fence with respect to Russia. It's a it's a huge country, most populous in the world now, burgeoning economy, and it's starting to flex its muscles a little bit internationally. So they're the great prize on the international stage right now. Um, so for this to come out at, 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 the, at this precise time, when the United States and others have got a full court press on with respect to India, it's it's difficult. So um, you know they're saying a little bit in public, uh, but. Clearly not as much, I think, as the Canadian would, would, would like to hear. Uh, the U.S. was a little bit more fulsome towards the end of last last week. Uh, Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor to President Biden, came out and, and said, listen, we're, we're there with, with, with Canada. We, we want there to be a full investigation. India's got to play ball. But um, it's, it's, still, it's still, I think, um, the United States and others as well, the U.K., they're hedging their bets a little bit. Um, even if the U.S. did provide some of the intelligence or the U.K. provided some intelligence, what they say behind closed doors and what they say publicly is not necessarily going to be the same thing. So they're careful. They're really careful. I think they'd like nothing more than Canada and India to sit down and sort this out and get it off the front pages and get it off the radar screen and let's get back to the most important business, which is from a geostrategic perspective for, for the United States and others, is to, is to get India on side and, and, and really have them as a, as a Western partner. But that doesn't look like it's happening, though, does it? I mean, the ideal situation would be for India to say, well, why do you think this? Let's sit down and talk about this. But they're not doing that. No, and this is the big question, right? What, what's it going to take for India to sit down and at least have, have a discussion? I mean, they, they reject the allegations outright in terms of Mr. Nijar's murder. They say they had nothing to do with it. Um, we're saying on our side that we provided them with intelligence, uh, that the National Security Intelligence Advisor, the Director of CSIS, went over to India and provided officials with some of this intelligence. But uh, they're saying, nope, they're wiping their hands of it. We're getting back to the same old rhetoric. Because this is not this is not new stuff in terms of the tensions between the two countries. Um, the old rhetoric about Canada is a haven for sea terrorists, and, and so we're just we're just unfortunately into this into this <laughs> a bit of a spiral right right, right now. Um, I think in a perfect world, if India could just say, listen, let's have a discussion. Uh, bring your officials back over. We'll sit down. We'll look at the intelligence in in closer detail, and we'll see if we can find a way a way through this. Uh, I think that the U.S. will put some pressure on the U.S. on India uh, behind the scenes to to do that. And you know, we've seen a little bit of improvement over the last few days. The rhetoric's come down a, a tiny, tiny bit, notwithstanding some demonstrations outside of of uh, Indian consulates and the High Commission. Um, but to, to just tone it down and try and, and try and get through this. Do you think that's happening behind the scenes right now? Do you get that sense? Oh, I suspect there's lots of discussions happening behind the scenes. I have no doubt between um, Canada and, and India, hopefully, certainly between Canada and other, and other allies. So there's lots of discussions, and I think everybody would like to see this um, go away. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, I mean, on, on, the, on the Indian side, I mean, obviously there's just you know, there's, there's domestic factors at play here. Um, Prime Minister Modi's position inside India as a defender of, of, of Indian national interests. And to a certain extent, this is playing well for Mr. Modi right now inside India. Um, cracking down on, on, Sikh, on Sikh extremism and standing up to, to countries who they claim are not playing fair ball. So that's that's part of the problem, I think. If if Mr. Modi could just step back from from his own political fortunes inside his country, don't don't forget he has an election coming up soon too. Well, that's next year, I believe. Yeah. That's it. So this is it's not going to be easy. But we've seen a few signs in the last few days that maybe the temperature is coming down just a little bit. But uh, you know, it's going to play out over 
over over weeks, months. I think it will subside ultimately, but it's not going away. It's a fraught relationship. It has been, as we all know, for a number of years. Um, in many respects, it's not so much a, an escalation, but a culmination. It's, it's surprising that something more serious hadn't happened before now. Um, but uh, but uh, I, I'm I'm optimistic or guardedly optimistic that over time it'll it'll go back to where it was. But that wasn't necessarily a good place to begin with. No, it wasn't. Uh, thanks so much for your time, Vincent. My pleasure, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, time for us to check in with our Scott Chance this morning because we're talking about the choice that people make about how many children they're going to have. And I'm not sure, Scott, if everybody consciously makes that choice or sometimes it just works out that way. Yeah, and I think that you're probably right. Uh, there's an article in McLean's the, the out right now called One and Done Parenting about exactly this, this uh, conscious decision that some people are making, and in some cases it just ends up this way, like you're saying, to have only one child. But uh, it's certainly becoming a thing. Uh, One-child families are the fastest-growing um, family model in Canada. And I know amongst the people that I talk to, Simi, amongst sort of my peer group, that people are, like, consciously deciding that for a variety of different reasons. But it, it makes sense, and you can definitely see it sort of happening. Uh, so I spoke with Jen Dalton. She's a writer, and she's blogged and contributed to various articles. She's quoted in this article in McLean's. And uh, she has a great Instagram account called One and Done Parenting, where she addresses all of these things. And I, I basically just started by asking her if, if she sees this too and if it's something that she is like conscious of it actually happening intentionally here in Canada. Yeah, there's a lot of factors that contribute to family size, but I think big ones that are you know more general in nature are people are getting married later in life than previous generations. Obviously, being married isn't a prerequisite to have children, but I do think a lot of people would like to at least have a very committed lifelong partner before taking that leap. So delaying that, of course, can limit the probability of having a second child, whether it be due to the age they find that partner or the age that they have their first child. And then, of course, cost of living is a huge one. And then, of course, home ownership is a big one. You know, like you look at Vancouver, Compared to 1990, the house prices are up 250 to 300%. And of course, wages have not been in line with that at all. I think a lot of everything that you're sort of talking about, people getting married later, like that, I think is tied back to a lot of the same the same things. And it kind of just, you know, everything is kind of getting pushed back and we just have less resources. But another angle is that people who, cho- who are choosing this one child thing, it, it almost seems like they're happier, like it's a choice that they made. And it's like, wow, I actually am glad that it worked out that way. Do you do you see that? Do you notice that? Yeah, like I think people's measurement of happiness regarding family size is so personal. Um, there are studies that show that parents, especially mothers, are happiest with one child. And then there's studies that show families are happiest with four or more kids, you know, so I don't think there's a right or wrong reason here. I know for me personally, I'm the happiest with one child because it provides balance for my family in terms of my family, my marriage, my personal development, my career development, and having that balance of all those areas makes me happy. And I know for me, having a second kid would impact those areas of development that I'm striving for. 
I have two kids and a lot of uh, my peers have two or one child. And then when we talk to people from maybe an older generation, most of the families have three or four kids. Do you think that people who are choosing to have less kids or even just one child are sort of viewed differently as maybe sort of selfish or, you know, not up to the task of being able to handle more kids? I feel like that sometimes. Like I hear it all the time. I'm like, oh, you only (laughs) have two. There's almost this attitude out there, you know? No, for sure. There is judgment. Um, You know, having one child is the fastest growing family size in Canada. So it's not like it's abnormal to have one child. But I do think judgment can come from people with larger families sometimes when they think like, oh, you have it easy with one kid. That's why you get to do X, Y, Z. And, you know, maybe there is some truth to that. Maybe we couldn't do some things that we do as a family if we had, you know, a larger family. But we choose our own paths. And there's benefits to having larger families and there's benefits to having smaller families. And I don't think we should judge people either way. Are there like any sort of risks or, or downsides, maybe even like culturally to us having one child? Like we know that there are places in the world where one child has been policy and we hear things about how that could affect like economics long term. Or is that something that you don't think is coming into the conversation at all yet here in, in Canada? Yeah, like having two kids is still very much the norm in Canada. I think, you know, if the government wants us to have more children and being able to have it, they need to help support daycare costs. They need to make it easier for people to have one child. You know, in much of the country, we have huge hospital wait times. You know, those are stressful for parents when you have a young child who could get sick and need immediate attention. And then, of course, the cost of housing is a big one. So I think it's the surrounding circumstances that impact whether someone has one child, none, or many. Um, But in terms of actual, like, having one child, I don't think there's a negative aspect to being an only child. Right. There could definitely be economic impact. I've heard people say, like, oh, people who are only children – They're lonelier when they're older. Have you heard that? Do people take that into consideration? Yeah, people do say that or they have a worry that that will happen for their child. Um, You know, I'm an only child and that is the farthest from my life. Like I can give you an example. I moved to a new city five hours away from everyone I've ever known in my whole life about a year ago and I have probably about a community of like 30 friends right now that I made in a year. Right. Yeah. I've always responded to that with this idea of like, well, you choose who you're, you know, it's the chosen family thing. You just, it's who you invest your time with, right? That those people become your, your family and the people that you spend holidays with and, you know, stop you from being lonely and such. And, you know, you have your own family. Like, you know, people like imagine, oh, like when you, when your parents die, that only child is all all alone. Like assuming that that parent dies, let's just say 80, the only child when their parents die might be 55, for example. I would expect a 55-year-old to have gone through life and potentially have a romantic partner, maybe a child or two of their own, have neighbors, have coworkers, have childhood friends, have friends they made a year ago at a new hobby. You know, like to say that the sibling relationship is the only relationship that matters and is the only indicator of loneliness is 
just insane to me. That's Jen Dalton. She's an advocate of one and done parenting. She has an Instagram account, one and done parenting. You can find it there. Lots of information. Uh, I would like to state very clearly, Simi, that I love both of my children equally, but gosh, that seems nice only having one kid. Yeah. (laughs) Wait until your kids get older and they don't believe you that you love one of them. You love them equally because my kids continually try to guess who the favorite child is, but we'll leave that discussion for another day. Fantastic. (laughs) So many things you have to look forward to. Scott, thank you. You got it. This is Mornings with Simi. Housing is a big topic today. We know there's that press conference coming up this afternoon to talk more about getting municipalities to approve more housing developments. But how can they make them more affordable? How can we make them more affordable in particular for that that group of people right in the middle, the working class or the missing middle of housing there. Local governments do play an absolutely critical role in that. And this was something that came up time and time again at the Union of BC Municipalities Conference last week. And we are going to talk about some of the things that were kind of introduced or discussed there because joining us now is Lillian Chow, a Chief Executive Officer of Entrepreneur Femme Housing Society. Lillian, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Simi. Uh, it's great to be here. Uh, tell me a little bit about Entre New Femme. Yeah, well, Entre New Femme um, is an organization that was started almost 40 years ago by three single mothers who in the mid-80s was finding a hard time finding affordable homes for themselves. So they actually created an organization uh, with $1,000 from the YWCA and really took advantage of the uh, federal government investment in affordable housing at the time and actually started building three of our first buildings. Um, And we provide affordable housing primarily to single mothers, single parents, uh, seniors, as well as people from different equity-deserving groups. Okay, and let's talk about that. Do you feel that there are some groups that are being forgotten in this housing discussion? Um, I I think not necessarily forgotten. Certainly, I think the nonprofit sector is um, very aware of that there is an inequitable access to housing. So that, you know, when we say the housing crisis, it does affect everyone, but affect everyone in different ways. So maybe to give you a quick example, for example, single single mothers, right? So in Metro Vancouver, um, their incomes are about half as much of a couple with children. So couples with children, their average income might be about uh, $80,000. Um, for an average income for a single mom, it's about $40,000. And that's about also $10,000 less than if you were a single dad with kids. So in, in order for them to actually afford housing, it is much more difficult because they would have a lot less choice. Okay, so which category then do you feel like, hey, we need to pay attention here, this group needs help? Um, definitely, I think that the folks that are making incomes that are less than the medium average So the way that the provincial government or BC Housing looks at that kind of uh, benchmark is that if you were able to um, make a minimal income and allowed you to pay uh, for market housing, uh, you don't qualify for subsidized housing. But the people that don't. So, for example, if you were looking at a one bedroom or less, your household income would be below $58,000. And so if you're looking at three bedroom, you're looking at below $86,000. Right. And most of the folks that we house are actually about 30% less than that. So they might be only making 40000 45000 And this is because they might be on income assistance. They may be on fixed incomes because they're a senior. They might be on disability. Or they're just working service jobs that don't pay um, quite a living wage for them to actually afford market rent. Right. And so one of the things talked about at the UBCM last week is that you feel 
you know what, with the incentives that are offered, for instance, that removing the GST on rental buildings last week, that clearly has kickstarted a group. What do you think the government can do? Um, I think moving, um, you know, relieving the GST from the federal government, I think that is definitely a move in the right direction. Um, building affordable housing is and rental housing is uh, very costly, and it takes a lot of time. Um, I think from a provincial, um, municipal, you know, there's different levels of governments that can certainly uh, help as well. So at UBCM, we were really talking about how municipal governments can actually um, help kind of spur on affordable housing because, as you had mentioned earlier in your, in your intro, the buck really stops there, right? Housing doesn't get built if the municipality doesn't actually approve them. And so we were really talking about how municipalities can reduce some of that risk by um, creating faster approval times, um, reducing some costs, providing land to nonprofits to actually build, and actually um, moving forward and making some hard decisions, especially when perhaps the community doesn't want that type of housing in their community. Lillian, are you hopeful? Um, I am. Um, there's a lot of great things happening. Um, BC Housing had just offered, um, had actually issued their new funding program called the Community Housing Fund. And that provides nonprofits with um, an opportunity to build some really deeply affordable housing, which we know um, everyone, um, you know, very specific folks really do need. Um, I think there is more incentives here for market developers to build more rental housing, like waiving of the GST. I think that's a good thing as well, because it's not just the nonprofit sector. We also need the market, um, the private development sector to also be building more housing. Um, we can't really do this alone. We definitely need a concerted effort by everybody. You make a great point, Lillian. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. This is Mornings with Simi. There are still so many questions about how Yaroslav Hanka was, quote, vetted and allowed to come to the House of Commons and be commended, no less. How did the person doing the vetting not see or realize the landmines that were in his background? As we heard yesterday on the show, Hanka has made no secret of his past, even blogging about the, quote, best two years of his life, being in the Waffen-SS, fighting with the Nazis against Russia in the Second World War. I mean, is the problem here that people don't know enough history, that the person doing the vetting didn't realize what it means to say you fought against the Russians in Ukraine during the Second World War? Like, what else do we not know about because we are, we're just not paying attention to history. We're not learning our history. Well, joining us now to talk more about this is Ivan Kachanovsky, who's a professor of political studies and conflict studies and human rights at the University of Ottawa. Ivan, thank you for being here. Uh, thank you for the invitation. Ivan, do we need to learn more about our history? Like, it's so surprising that this happened. Do people just not realize what it means when you say where you fought in World War II? Uh, yes, I think this was uh, totally unbelievable that such elementary knowledge about World War II, in which uh, Canada was involved and which is amazing conflict in the history of humanity, would not be kind of um, immediately clear to um, members of the Canadian Parliament, to Prime Minister of Canada, to uh, Zelensky and members of his delegation who gave pending ovation to a um, uh, veteran of uh, of. Uh, Assess Galicia Division, uh, even so, uh, kind of, uh, he was not uh, mentioned as such, he was just mentioned fighting Russian, Russians, but actually, uh, he, um, uh, uh, Russians were not only 
part of the Soviet uh, military at the time. There were millions of Ukrainians fighting also against Nazi Germany. So he also was involved in fighting against uh, many Ukrainians. And I think this was quite an unbelievable issue to, to, for me to, uh, to witness and to, to see because I researched this division. I know the politics and uh, I still cannot believe that this could have happened. This is epic debacle. And I think uh, which would have negative impact in Canada and many other countries, but uh, it now uh, it's already been uh, tackled by politicians, by the media. I think this is a very good sign. Uh, Ivan, though, is it a collective failing? Like, did we collectively fail to not understand our history? Uh, yeah, I think this is uh, this is a kind of a major failure. And major kind of a debacle because uh, kind of, uh, but I, I don't think this would refer just to to everybody because um, people on Twitter when uh, they found a reference to Associated Press article uh, about uh, this person serving in the first uh, Ukrainian division also noticed that this was actually a reference to uh, a third Galicia division. So it was not only kind of a limited knowledge, it was easy to find with very basic information which was available or should be available, especially for people who given such uh, kind of reception and such uh, state innovation right. in the Ukrainian parliament. Ivan, let me ask you, though, are we, like, post-World War II, obviously there was a lot of immigration, right? People from Europe moving to North America in Canada and the United States, was a lot of that history, like, did we not look enough into the history of people who were moving here at that time? Uh, yes, I think this was uh, after World War II and also during the Cold War. And for this reason, uh, a lot of uh, people, I think uh, about 2,000 veterans of SS Galicia Division moved to Canada during the Cold War. And this was uh, kind of um, just uh, also political decision because of the... Uh, uh, of the, uh, the geopolitical considerations, and they, they were not investigated. There was no major issue until I think there was a commission established in the 1980s to investigate this division. But also because of the Cold War, this uh, commission did not investigate properly this division, and only basic historians and people who are involved in Ukrainian studies were uh, researching this division. And I also published a peer review article. Um, examining involvement of these division members in variety of atrocities, including mass murder of Jews, Ukrainians, and Poles during World War II. So I think this this is I think very important uh, to uh, for politicians actually to understand uh, basics of uh, uh, of history, uh, like basic facts of history. I think they are very highly educated, so they supposed to know this uh, kind of. But also uh, to prevent this because it uh, kind of they are supposed to be steps to prevent such event from right. taking place in the first place. Okay, so there's supposed to be steps, but, but Ivan, what do you think Canadians need to know? Like, what are some of those gaps that we have? What do you want them to know? I think it's, it's uh, because I uh, specialize in teaching and, and uh, doing research in uh, conflict studies and human rights in Ukraine, Ukrainian politics. So I think there are a lot of information, uh, again, about uh, basic knowledge, which is not uh, widely known in Canada and many other Western countries. Uh, for instance, um, a few people know in Canada that uh, about 6 million uh, people in Ukraine were killed uh, during World War II, during the Nazi occupation of Ukraine, including uh, one and a half million Jews, but, but also many millions of Ukrainians were killed uh, during World War II. My own uh, 
גם פאזה, גם, גם פאזה, ואוסו, סלקטיב פרויקסיקיושן בין נאצים, זה סווייב, ויוקראין There was also another organization uh, which was fighting against the Soviet Union, but uh, called the Ukrainian Sergeant Army, but this uh, organization also was uh, basically mostly Nazi collaborators who served in the police, but later joined uh, and established this organization to fight at the end of World War II. So again, uh, kind of, I think in uh, World War II, I think this, this conflict was quite uh, kind of quite significant and quite uh, clear-cut from a such a perspective because in and the same applies to Ukraine there was basically only real choice is between supporting Nazi Germany or support or supporting uh, again allies including the Soviet Union at the time so, so I think and many people uh, there was no need to voluntarily join this division as as uh, as was done by people who joined this division voluntarily uh, at the end of World War II when it was already clear after battle of Stalingrad that this uh, that Nazi Germany would face very difficult time and possi- a real possibility of defeat right uh, Ivan do we all have work to do like what would you tell Canadians like, like do we need to educate ourselves Yeah, I think, yes, I think this is important because I'm a professor, I teach students, and I, I always give them information about Ukraine and, and, and background in Ukraine, which is not very widely known. And I think uh, even the current war in Ukraine also kind of has a lot of um, kind of blank spots and also other conflicts in Ukraine. And even uh, I did a search about, uh, which I also showed students, about invention of electronic digital computer, which also has linked to Ukraine, a contribution of Ukrainian mathematicians to this invention of electronic digital computer. But again, very few people know in Canada and many other countries. That's so true. Ivan, thank you for your time. You're welcome. Appreciate that. That's Ivan Kachanovsky, a professor of political studies, conflict studies and human rights at the University of Ottawa, uh, saying that essentially what we saw happen, this worldwide embarrassment that Canada has suffered, uh, the fact that the House of Commons pretty much um, you know, saluted and commended somebody who you know, fought with the Nazis in World War II, that embarrassment right there uh, could have been avoided if we just paid attention to history, if more people knew history. Like how did somebody vetting that person to go into the House of Commons not see the red flags. And there's still more to come on this. There's still a lot of pressure. More parties have called on the Speaker of the House to resign. And I believe the Speaker actually has a meeting with some of the party leaders about that, that the Bloc Québécois is now also saying that Anthony Rota should resign. So there is more to come on that, and we'll keep you posted. This is Mornings with Simi. We have a bit of a theme going today, actually, about parts of our history that you may not know about. Now, as part of the Where We Live series today, we are talking about knowing our history when it comes to advocating for LGBTQ2 plus communities. And you know what? Our next guest can help you with that. In fact, 
Our next guest helps people with that all the time. And it's Glenn Takachi with us, a storyteller and creator of the Really Gay History Tour for Forbidden Walking Tours Vancouver. Glenn, thanks for being here. It is a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Also, great name for your tour. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me, when people go on this tour, what can they expect to hear about? They can expect to hear some of the uh, most important moments, key moments in local LGBTQ plus history, uh, m- breakthrough moments, uh, uh, moments of great uh, activism and heroism, uh, moments of persecution, and uh, just the the dramatic and colorful story of the heroes in our community who uh, fought for the freedoms and liberties that we have today. Are we not very good at remembering this? We're not, and I don't know that we're <laughs> uh, that any one of us is is to blame. This is a history because it's a history of a marginalized community. That means, by definition, that it's a history that's kind of invisible for obvious reasons throughout most of. Vancouver's history. This is a history that people weren't documenting themselves in a queerphobic society. People did not want to shine a light on what they were doing. So it's a history that it was that was lived in an underground way, in an invisible way. But beyond that, it has also been suppressed, ignored, denied, and even actively erased by a culture that wanted to uh, pretend that we were not real. But are there or were there, I should say, moments in our history that when you go on this tour and you think, listen, we should be proud. Look at this. Look at this. Absolutely. There's lots that we ought to know about. And some, a lot of what happened in Vancouver obviously is significant on a local level. But beyond that, much of it is significant on a national and even international level. There were really? some real big breakthrough moments here. Yes. Like what? For example, uh, the first queer minister, openly queer minister to be ordained in a church or in any major world religion. That happened here in Vancouver. Uh, uh, local minister, United Church minister, Tim Stevenson. was. I remember fir- this. Yeah, that is part of our history that people don't know about. What, what people don't know is that he was the first openly gay minister to be ordained in all of Canada. But also his... Uh, uh, then boyfriend and now husband, Gary Patterson, is also a minister within the United Church. And in 2012, he was elected moderator of the United Church of Canada, which made him the first openly gay leader of any major denomination of any major world religion worldwide. See, when you put it that way, that sounds pretty impressive. It is. It's really <laughs> significant and, and a breakthrough moment for all queer people of faith. And uh, yeah, it was okay. of national significance. Uh, what are some of your other favorites? What's your favorite? Well, there's a lot that I could say. It's hard for me to choose favorites because these are these are all really important and moving and powerful stories in their own way. But one that I wanted to talk about with you today because it is so timely is a hero called Ted North. And some of your listeners, if they live in the West End or if they visit the West End, they might have noticed a laneway in the West End that's named yes. for him right next to uh, the YMCA. Uh, there's a, a, a laneway that's been called Ted North Lane. And some people are sometimes curious about it because his name is spelled in all lowercase letters. And it looks like it could be a typo or a and mistake. And with an E on the end. And with an E on the end. That's just how his name is spelled. But also the lowercase letters is also how his name is spelt. And he legally changed his name to that lowercase spelling. And this is just part of a, uh, a long history of him being uh, unique. But that's anyway, that's not a typo or a mistake. That is how he spelled his name. And just a few weeks ago, uh, the city of Vancouver proclaimed 
September 13th, which was his, uh, which is his birthday, to be Ted North Day. And so I thought, uh, w- when you reached out to me, I thought, oh, we've got to talk about Ted North because he has just recently been given this new honor by the city of Vancouver. Okay, what was so important about Ted? And people, they should go look for this lane because, and now that you're going to know about him, understand why this is so important. Absolutely. So he, uh, can try to imagine what the climate would have been like back in 1958 in this city at a time when homosexuality was a crime, when it was criminalized. And he is standing on the steps of the Vancouver courthouse. And some of your listeners might know that that building is still standing and that it's the Vancouver Art Gallery. Of course, yeah. uh, It's right across the street. Exactly, right across the street from us. So imagine when it was a courthouse that uh, Ted North is standing there with a small group of brave protesters who are brave enough to be protesting the criminalization of homosexuality on the steps. In 1958. That's right, on the steps of the courthouse, carrying signs that uh, that say, I am a human being. But he took it to a whole new level by showing up He organized this protest and he showed up at it in full drag. He was a drag queen. 1958. Yeah. It was a very brave and very noticeable thing to do. And that was the beginning of a whole decade's worth of activism where he carried on showing up in drag at protests that he had organized himself at a time when it was incredibly risky to do this. The government was actually stepping up its persecution of the queer community at this time, all throughout the 1960s, this is the Cold War era. So, you know, the communist scare is uh, is uh, alive and well across the Western world. And that's when they were kind of purging people from jobs and things too, right? That is exactly right. This was part of the communist scare. Queer people were suspected of being communists. But uh, I suppose more to the point, we were suspected of being communist spies because our moral character was so corrupt, but also because our dirty secrets made us vulnerable to blackmail, or that was the reasoning. So you're exactly right. The purge, as it's called by historians, was happening. And this is, and it is every bit as ominous as it sounds. Uh, We were being purged from the government. We were being purged from society. There was a whole division of the RCMP seeking us out and exposing us, if not arresting us, if not um, subjecting us to electroshock therapy. And Ted North, in the meantime, is putting on his lipstick and his heels and showing up in full drag at protests that he had organized himself. That's amazing when you think about what the environment was at that time. So what happened to him? He uh, was a major influence on Pierre Elliott Trudeau. Uh, Trudeau and Ted North became friends. It was in large part at Ted's urging and at his insistence and through his inspiration that Trudeau put forward the legislation that we all know about in 1967, which would amend the sodomy statute and would ultimately uh, decriminalize, or at least symbolically decriminalize homosexuality in Canada. So the whole idea of the government has no place in the bedrooms of Canadians, we can trace to this. We can trace to this. And a lot of people, that's an epic quote, and it's an amazing quote. And um, that quote is memorable to lots of Canadians. Lots of us know what Trudeau did in 1969 on a legislative level to put decriminalization through, which was so important. But very few Canadians are aware that on the ground, fighting for this on uh, every day of his life for more than a decade at great risk to himself... I think we can say that the real hero and the unsung hero of decriminalization in this country is a drag queen called Ted North. 
And so you take, amazing, you take people on a tour so that they can stand right in that spot where he stood in 1958. Uh, we don't visit the courthouse steps because uh, from downtown to the West End would make uh, too long a walk. A walk. Yeah. But we do stand at Ted North Lane, which is, of course, a monument to his legacy and is also historically connected to him as a person because he lived right uh, at the bottom of that laneway for uh, the later years of his life. This is so key about remembering, just taking a look around our neighborhoods. Like people probably walk by that all the time and not understand really the historical significance of it, don't they? That's right. Yeah. So what do you want people to remember, especially with everything that seems to be going on right now, Glenn? Look, what do you want people to keep in mind? I think I'm really I'm pleased that the city of Vancouver has given Ted North this honor, but both in terms of the laneway, but also in terms of the recent proclamation of Ted North Day, which you should all remember is September 13th now. That was his birthday. Uh, I think in light of recent headlines and just some some of the recent social uh, struggle, which is once again focusing itself on the drag community, as it so often does. It seems to be a recurring cycle in our history. And as that people are panicking about drag queen story hours and that drag queens are grooming our children or whatever, I think it's important for our community and for our allies to uh, remember at a time like this that uh, the drag queens have so often been on the forefront, that the drag community and the trans community have so often been on the forefront of our fight for our liberties. And you're out there giving tours. Are people surprised like when you take them on this tour and show them all this history and teach them all this history? Do they go, I never knew that? People are blown away. A great example is Ted North Lane. There's a lot of people who have seen that lane or even live on that lane who had no idea what the story was and are often moved. I mean, there's a lot more to his story that I'm not telling you here that I get into on the tour. And we don't have the time. time Yeah, we don't have two hours. But... um, (laughs) Uh, So people are blown away by that story and by the impact that he had on a national level, that he he is a real hero, not just on a local, but on a national level, but every other story. I mean, a big problem for me is trying to decide what I could fit into a two-hour time frame because there is so much. There has been so much activism and heroism uh, in our community, and these stories uh, are often very impactful for people. I, I visibly see people moved often to tears on the tour. People are often there's hugs shared and um, uh, important breakthrough cathartic moments for yeah. people because it's so important for us to know our history and understand our roots and where we came from and on what and, and on whose shoulders we are standing. I couldn't have put it better myself, Glenn. Uh, thank you so much for helping us really illustrate the Where We Live series today. We appreciate that. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. And if people would love to take that tour, it is the Really Gay History Tour for Forbidden Walking Tours of Vancouver. And make sure you ask for Glenn to catch. Glenn, thank you so much. And that's part of our Where We Live series.